Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Rizzo and I'm the host of the show where I get to have conversations with Olympic athletes, hopefuls, and legends on their story and path to the games. But today I speak with Lisa Delphi Narati. Lisa has been to 19 Olympic games in her life since 1984. Lisa has an incredible wealth of knowledge on the subject, has been to so many of these mega events, including multiple FIFA games. Uh, She was just at the uh, 2020 Youth Olympic Games in Lusanne, and Lisa just has an incredible, incredible wealth of knowledge. As I said, she's been doing this thing for a very long time. She's a professor at George Washington, and it was an absolute blast just getting to talk to her about the Olympics, Olympic values, and some of the things that might be changing moving forward, and some of the things a lot of the people don't know about the IOC, which is also great information. So without further ado, here is Lisa. All right. Today's special guest, Lisa Delphi Narati sport management professor and director of sport management degree programs at George Washington University, executive master of Olympic sport organizations, and has attended 19 Olympic Games. Lisa, thank you so much for hanging out today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, it should be fun. Um, I, you know, I've talked to athletes that have been to, I think, five games. That is the most. Um, so you've attended many, many more than that. Um, so I'm very excited to get to learn a little bit about your story, what you've done, and uh, I guess why you've done it. So I guess the first question I want to ask, where does the love of the Olympic Games come from for you? Well, I was a competitive swimmer many years ago. And when I realized I could not uh, make it to the U.S. Olympic team, I decided the next best thing is to be part of the uh, organization that works with those athletes and brings their dreams to, to life. I love that. Yeah, the Olympics, it's such, a, um, it's such an incredible event. Every two years, for about two weeks, the world pretty much just everybody on planet Earth is watching this one event um, or these, you know, collective events. And I just think it's so cool. And that's what I love about it, too. Obviously, the love of your nation, the love of these athletes and what they put themselves through to kind of get to this stage is just absolutely incredible. And, I, you know, I think that's uh, that's what really does it for me, I think. Yeah. So, um You've been to 19 games with Tokyo most likely is going to be 20 if, if, I, if I count correctly. Um, what exactly are you doing at so many of these games? Is there, is there a specific job you have or is it just because you love it so much? Well, every game has been different, but the first uh, experience was as an intern with the U.S. Olympic Committee. So that was in 1984 Sarajevo Winter Olympic Games. And then I'm from... Southern California. So I worked as a volunteer. I was actually considered an IOC hostess at that time for the 1984 games. Um, And then I continued on for the Calgary Olympic Games 88. I wrote a research paper and was invited as a guest. And then I wrote another uh, thesis on, and I traveled around the world for two years studying the Olympic movement. So traveling to 56 different countries, following uh, really the money. How did national Olympic committees make money? What were they doing with that money? And I interviewed everyone from, you know, athletes asking them, you know, how are they training all the way up to IOC members. Uh, and it was interesting, the different perspectives of um, administrators from athletes. 
I could only imagine what that's like. I mean, getting to 56 countries, you said, I mean, athletes to executives and, and I'm assuming everybody in between. Uh, I'm sure you got some very uh, different answers uh, along the spectrum. So, I mean, that's, you kind of, you kind of just kept going and it just, it seems it kept working out. And obviously again, now Tokyo being number 20. Um, I mean, what is, what did you learn, especially in that two-year period when, when traveling around? Obviously, this is a little while ago and things have changed, um, I'm assuming, significantly. But what did you really learn about the Olympic movement, specifically when speaking with you know, all these different members of the NOCs? Well, interestingly enough, unfortunately, it hasn't changed all that much. I mean, there's some really great programs that are happening at a high level that many athletes are just not aware of. And for example, I've heard all about, um, you know, the IOC Athlete 365 program where there's the short-term educational programs and different opportunities that athletes can learn while they're also training. But so few athletes know about it and take advantage of these opportunities. And that's really what I learned in different National Olympic committees. I'd hear from the top executives about, oh, we do this for athletes and we have this funding mechanism but then you go talk to the athletes and they're not aware of it. Where do you think the disconnect is? Like where along the chain of, you know, telephone does it, it just not, like how does it just not reach the athletes? Well, I think, you know, blame could be had on both sides. I think oftentimes athletes don't always look at emails or don't always open mail. Uh, they're very busy training. Sometimes the coaches aren't the ones that are sharing this knowledge sometimes the executives come up with these great plans and don't really tell anybody about it. So um, I think it's peer communication. I mean, companies have this problem all the time, but I, I'd like to think we could overcome this. And I'm trying my best to get the word out to athletes as much as possible about different programs that the International Olympic Committee offers and I encourage them to ask their National Olympic Committee what kind of programs are available as well. So this is, this is absolutely incredible. So I, I commend you for doing that. I mean, the, the whole reason I work with Olympic athletes and NGBs is because I think that they have the most incredible stories. Um, they put the most time, effort, and energy into their craft. And most cases really receive the least amount out of it, um, which is unfortunate in certain situations. Obviously, there's a lot of success stories and we love all of them. But uh, I mean, if this is a way that we can get this information out to more athletes, I, you know, if, if there's a couple programs that other than the, the IOC 365, which I will absolutely make sure a couple of the, uh, the athletes that I know um, know about it. But what are some of the other programs that either the IOC or even the USOPC are, um, are trying to champion their athletes to uh, you know, take and learn and, and enjoy? Most National Olympic Committees have some sort of dual career program where they try to help athletes get placed with companies or help them get tuition benefits. Um, so such programs exist, for example, at the USOPC and also with, uh, you know, other National Olympic Committees. That but makes it. Oh. You have to dig for them. You, know? <laughs> you have to be a little aggressive and take advantage of it. In um, other countries, uh, developing countries, there are scholarships to be had for training and going to competition. But again, you have to get your coach or your National Sports Federation to fill out forms. Then that has to be taken to your National Olympic Committee. So it's a paper trail. 
And it's, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, it's too much trouble. But it's, it, you know, those that take the time to learn and fill out the right paperwork, uh, there's some funds. Um, I'm not sure if you know, but $3.4 million a day is distributed around the world by the International Olympic Committee through sport development. And so there, there is money. A lot of people say, oh, the IOC just hoards it for themselves. And I, I want to kind of, you know, change that image because I, I am witness, you know, witness every day the benefits that this money does make, especially in developing countries. That's incredible. That is absolutely something I did not know. Um, and maybe again, it's, it's the, why, you know, obviously you know about that. You're very close to the situation. I'm not quite as close to the IOC. Um, I'm, I'm more on the athlete and the NGB level, but it's, how is that something that I don't hear about every day? Right? Like why, again, where is, where is the disconnect between the people at the top to the, the voice piece and the megaphone where something like this, I mean, I, I'm not here to point fingers, but the IOC is, is, nine times out of 10 looked at as almost just as corrupt or as just as not fulfilling as like FIFA. And we all know FIFA, that's kind of like a running joke. That's the butt of most jokes. But I mean, I never thought that they were that corrupt. Of course, there's always things that are going on, but why isn't something like that more well-known? That's, that's really interesting to me. The International Olympic Committee has always taken a reactive versus proactive communication stance. And um, I, I keep hoping that one day they will uh, be more um, proactive and share more about everything that they're doing. Yeah, it's, I mean, just in all fronts, you know, in business, in life, being proactive almost is always, always, always better because it allows you, A, just to get in front of the situation or the story or whatever is going on, um, but it also buys you some credibility and some cachet with the people listening. So if anything does kind of stumble along the way, you have something to point back at and be like, well, hey, look, we're, do, we're giving away $3.4 million a day. Um, now I don't have a calculator in front of me and I can't quite do that math in my head, but that's a significant amount of money, probably close to a billion dollars if I'm not mistaken. And it comes from the sponsors. It comes from TV rights. You know, again, all that money doesn't just stay in Lausanne with the IOC members. It is redistributed out. And I, you know, even the sponsors should get more credit for everything that they're doing around the world. Yeah, especially, um, you know, I, I'm always on top of sponsors and partnerships because that's obviously, that's, that's my job. I help these athletes, I help these NGBs with sponsors and partnerships. And, and one that, that really um, struck a chord with me that I thought was really fantastic is the, uh, the Airbnb deal that the IOC just signed. You know, I can't remember the exact dollar amount or, or the VIK involved, but understanding that, you know, some of the hotel partners are a little angry about it. That's a whole other side of the story. But not having to build these structures that are really only used for the games um, allows people to kind of come in and then they can utilize the already existing bedrooms, all right? And then that way we don't have to build as many structures. But it's also great for the athletes because they can come in and they can have these experiential opportunities with the people all around the world, which I think is awesome. So are there any others that you can point to that you've found have been super successful um, to help the athletes, to help the countries, to help, you know, all parties involved? I mean, Visa has a select few athletes that they bring on as ambassadors. And um, that program has always, you know, stood out as, as very successful. Um, you have, you know, going back to the Airbnb, I think they should extend that. And if there's any way to offer discounts, so many athletes, as you know, struggle 
just to make ends meet of traveling to different competitions. And I don't know whether this could be extended to athletes as they travel around the world for their different competitions. And in um, let's say there's always like Samsung and Intel and all of these are obviously offering product mm-hmm. more so than cash and athletes always need the cash, <clears throat> but they do supply some great product and perks at the Olympic games for those that make it. Absolutely. I mean, a Samsung phone runs about a thousand dollars. So, Hey, I mean, if someone wants to give me a phone, I'm sure the athletes aren't going to be too angry about it. Right. But, uh, no, I think that's great. And, and, uh, you brought it up, you brought up Intel, which is actually a really interesting kind of little segue into the next thing I'd like to talk about. Um, well, first off great idea with the Airbnb thing. I will reach out to a couple people, um, and send enough emails that they have to email me back. So maybe we can get something done there. Um, but you brought up Intel. Um, and again, it kind of ties in. So one of, uh, I saw a couple of the interviews you did because you're recently um, at the Youth Winter Games, um, if I'm not mistaken. And one of the questions was, you know, how do we engage the younger audience more? Um, so I know you had some great answers there. And, you know, I just kind of would love to help distribute those a little bit more. So what are some of your thoughts when it does come to that younger demographic? Because the IOC knows if you don't get the young kids interested in, you know, the next in LA 2028, the 16-year-olds are going to be 24, the 24-year-olds are going to be 32 these people aren't interested in showing up. That's a pretty big problem. Well, I actually started my career as an elementary school teacher teaching the Olympic values in class and using the Olympics as a hook in the classroom. So that's really how I started in the Olympics. Um, and U.S. Olympic OC, OPC uh, used to have this very robust education program for elementary, middle, and high school. And that has really gone away. And Canada used to have a you know, model program. And unfortunately, over the years, these strong Olympic education programs have um, not been funded as much as they were. And I think many kids learned about the Olympics, the history of the Olympics, the values of the Olympics in the classroom. And I think we need to get that back in. So uh, that's something that I'm talking to the International Olympic Committee about as well. The other thing is, you know, there is competition with, you know, kids online. Uh, You know, there's more opportunities for entertainment. They don't go out and play as much as we used to. So we need to make doing sport more exciting and more engaging even to watch. So somebody said, oh, this next generation has such a short attention span. Well, I watch my son play video games hours on end. So I don't think it's the attention span so much is that we don't provide enough engagement, enough, you know, exciting content uh, for them to sit for hours and watch a sport event. So that's what I would suggest. We need to find some way to make our sports a little bit more engaging. Some ways to do that is through technology now. I'm not sure if you've heard that, you know, biathlon has changed the way they um, do shooting and it's um, electronic now. So it's more like a a video game shooting. And, you know, you just see other that the scoring for Taekwondo is now uh, with these sensors. So, you know, the more you kind of show data and show technology, I think that's one way that we can make our um, 
young people more engaged? Yeah, I mean, you bring up three really great points. Um, you know, the first one, I I remember, I can't remember what year it was. I want to say sixth or seventh grade, but I don't don't 100% quote me on it. But I remember the first time, I mean, I always watched the Olympics up to that point, but really learning about it um, was the uh, 80 Olympics, if I'm not mistaken, with the boycott of Russia. Um, and then we always learn about the uh, Munich or Berlin. I can't remember when. when uh, Munich. Munich. Okay. I can never remember. Uh, obviously with, with Hitler and everything going on there. So that's kind of when we learned more about the history of the Olympics, but I can't quite say I've ever learned like the Olympic values in school, which I do think is a great idea. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's just a good way to live your life, right? You know, like it's, it's very baseline, but at the same time, if you can tie it back to sports, I think that that's a great way of going about it. And I mean, obviously you did it and uh, apparently it worked pretty well. Cause look, you're here now, right? Right. Something that I, I did want to touch on as well is that uh, I teach, so after I went to the Olympic Games and learned as much as I could as a student, um, once joining George Washington University in 1991, I started bringing students to the Olympic Games and I've been taking them every Games since the Summer Olympic Games in Barcelona in 1992. And that's where I try to uh, share the, you know, not only the management and marketing of the Olympics, but the you know, Olympic values. And then when we go, I take them to the games and they get to experience that spirit and that excitement. And, you know, I consider them uh, Olympic ambassadors going forward. Absolutely, as you should. And hopefully they shout it from the rooftops um, because I can only imagine. I mean, just the, the opportunity to essentially study abroad and also at the same time see this incredible event live. Um, there's not many opportunities like that. You know, like they, they essentially come once every two years at this point. And uh, no, I think that's a great, uh, great program you have. And clearly, you know, if it's still going since 92, you said uh, it's I mean, we're we're uh, we're 20. 30-something years, almost 30 years strong. I mean, you're clearly doing something right. Right. No, it's a great program, and we collect data when we go. So we're actually giving back to the Olympic movement. Um, the data that we collect in venues and um, in transportation helps uh, the International Olympic Committee and the local organizing committees plan better on ways they can reduce um, seating areas or reduce the number of buses and the number of times they uh, they move and so that would reduce gas and vehicles etc yeah and traffic that's very very necessary especially when we're talking about a place like tokyo it's already relatively jam-packed so i'm sure they're using hopefully using some of the information that you've given them um going back uh back to the point on engaging younger audiences so you you brought it up so i just want to kind of dovetail off it um you know you talked about video games a lot and i know that's that's been a topic of conversation for the last few years um and the reason why when you brought up intel um, I wanted to, you know, again, tie that in is I know Intel is holding an event the week before the Olympics actually start, which is an eSport event. And I know it's not an IOC sanctioned event, but I did read that they had a, a hand in it and really wanted to see what it was like. So uh, again, going back to engaging younger audiences, I totally agree with technology, but how do you feel about the potential of, you know, some of these eSports, obviously ones that go along with the Olympic values. Um, how do you feel about something like that to at least capture the younger audience just so they can then be exposed to some of the other sports and the other opportunities that the Olympics have to offer? Well, we've already saw the, um, the Olympic program changing, adding skateboarding and surfing and some 
younger, more dynamic sports. And uh, I think esports, I was able to go to the test trial, um, the Intel um, series in Pyeongchang right before the Olympic Games. And that was more just a showcase to invite IOC members and staff in to see it. But in um, Tokyo, it's going to be a, a full competition. And I, I think it's just going to grow. I know Paris is planning on having an eSport competition too, even if it's not exactly on the program. Yeah, I heard Paris, it may be um, demonstration sport, not 100% yet. Uh, so I'm really hoping it is. That way, LA28, um, it'll be a full-blown you know, metal event, which I think would be really cool and a pretty cool place to start it out. And, you know, uh, breakdancing is mm -hmm. on the program for the, the Paris games. Um, but going back to the video games, as you know, there's, um, you know, some challenges about what type of games will be played. You know, the athletes have to be, um, maybe moderate their language. Uh, we have to worry about making it equal sex because the IOC is very committed to having 50% of both, you know, male and female. And so, you know, and because the IOC, nobody, you know, there are people who own these games, so they have to be in agreement to let the International Olympic Committee use their game in a competition. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of different, um, and of course, I mean, esports is such a young, um, it's such a young sport, I guess is the best way to say it, where, you know, I know another uh, pitfall is there's really no national governing bodies or even international governing body. It's essentially the Wild West right now. Um, so I just think it's really interesting. And again, with, with the opportunity to engage the younger audience, um, I think there is a right way to do it. Obviously, specific games, you know, nothing with shooting and killing people. That's not quite an Olympic, uh, <laughs> you know, something they want to promote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Olympic values. Yes, yes. Thank you. The Olympic values. That's not quite one of them. Um, but I definitely think that there are some opportunities. And obviously, uh, you know, looking at everything is the right thing to do. Maybe they don't land on it. Maybe it's a fringe event as we've done these last couple of years. Maybe it's quite a little on the outside. But at the same time, I think that there's a lot of opportunities, which I think could be very, very interesting. Um, Most likely, they're going to start with, you know, Rocket League or uh, NBA 2K, just because those are a little safer. Uh, and they relate somewhat to sport. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Rocket League, for people that don't quite know, it's, uh, it's essentially soccer, but you control like, a, like an RC car, essentially. You just try and hit the ball into the net. I've played it. It's a blast. I'm not very good at it, but it's something fun. And then obviously NBA 2K is, you know, if we're going to have a, NBA athletes in the Olympics already, it'd be kind of cool to have the, uh, some guys playing them as video game characters as well. But um, so, so thank you for that part of the discussion. So one thing I really want to learn a little bit about, so you kind of described your time at the first few Olympics that you went to. What has been the biggest difference you've seen? I, I, you know, I think I might know the answer and it might be technology, but what's the biggest difference you've seen from, you know, uh, the 84 Olympic Games, the two of them that you went to, to, you know, 2018 in Pyeongchang? Actually, the, one of the biggest differences is commercialization. So in Sarajevo, I could not find a decent t-shirt or sweater or hat or pin. Uh, 
there were no big superstores with a bunch of merchandise. Uh, in fact, I still have this sweater. I was, it was freezing out. I was walking through, I saw this man have this sweater with the Olympic rings and it said Sarajevo. And I said, ooh, ooh, that means where did you get that? He takes his sweater off and gives it to me. It was hand knit. I mean, you could definitely tell his wife or girlfriend or mother probably was not happy that he gave his sweater away. But um, it's still one of my most precious Olympic souvenirs. That is incredible. I mean, what a first off, what an extremely nice gentleman. Um, and yeah, second off, I hope whoever knitted him that sweater was, you know, angry enough to knit him another one. Uh, so maybe he gave it out. Maybe there's only a couple of them uh, worldwide and you have one of them, Lisa. That is awesome. Um, but that's surprising. I wouldn't have guessed. I actually tried to go back to Sarajevo and find him. I put a picture in the newspaper and said, hey, you know, <laughs> this is somebody's sweater. Please let me know. But, um, you know, there was a war over there and so many young people um, did not make it. So anyway, it is my most precious Olympic souvenir. Absolutely. It's one of one. Uh, you know, you can buy a t-shirt now and I'm sure there's millions of them made, but not too many hand-knit sweaters uh, with the Olympic rings on them. That's, that is very interesting. Um, but commercialization, it's interesting you say that because um, that's kind of one of the first things I would think of when it comes to the Olympics, the commercialization of it. But in reality, that didn't really start until I think 84 in LA is when the sponsorship aspect of it became gigantic. Um, so that's a really great point you make. I would not have, uh, I would not have guessed that, but I guess that's because I've only really been able to see the last 10 or so, I guess, at this point. Yes, there was, you know, very few sponsors and, you know, now there are significant more. Yes, absolutely. And as we've seen, I mean, I, that's something I pay attention to every day. So it's very interesting. Um, what, what else about, I guess, the Olympic Games is it that, that you have seen change over the years, either slowly or quickly? Or what, what's been the thing that you have seen make the biggest impact to where now we're getting, you know, literally three to five billion people watching, um, you know, these two weeks every two to four years? The number of countries. I mean, when you look at how many countries participated in 1984 versus now, um, now we have 206 countries and territories. Uh, back then, maybe 80, I think it was. And also the global distribution uh, before, you know, well, I just read a paper on this. So, <laughs> uh, you know, 60, what, 1936 was the first time that it was ever broadcast, but it was only in. Um, uh, um, Germany when they hosted the games and so then it you know started to expand but now there's global coverage you know um, all through Africa all through all five continents you can watch the Olympic Games whether it's linear or digital yeah, it's it's incredible. Uh, just some of the numbers, and that that's a great point too. I mean, this the the sheer volume. I mean, considering from thirty six, uh, uh, you know what what the the broadcast availability is, but the fact that many of these countries, you know, and now have the capabilities of sending athletes, whereas before, and I'm not going to call them third world countries. Some of them obviously were, but there are so many more countries that have kind of made that step, made that leap, that now have the opportunity and the ability to send these athletes. I think it's incredible. And obviously, you know, some, some countries have one athlete in the games and that, you know, you look at ratings and that night, you know, on, on their channel, it's just, that's what the entire country's watching. And I think it's incredible. 
And this is where most of the Olympic money comes from, is the increase in broadcast rights fees. So as we know, NBC's paid $7.5 billion for the Olympic Games through 32. You know, we don't even know where the games are going to be in 30 and 32. And we don't even know what kind of technology people are going to be watching in, you know, the 2030s. But, you know, NBC took a bet and um, they're committed to the Olympics. I think they're going to make the right bet. Um, and just to point out the technological side, I know I read an article today, if I'm not mistaken, talking about um, NBC's new streaming platform, Peacock. They're, I don't think they're going to be having, they're not going to have any of the sporting events on it, but I think they're going to be having the opening and the closing ceremonies on it as kind of like its first foray into these more live events, which I think is a, is a great idea. It'll get people interested. It'll get people talking. And, you know, again, in 2030, I wouldn't be surprised if we would have a significant amount of the games on one of these streaming services with, you know, primetime still being the main, the main events that we all watch, um, you know, at night on, on, you know, here in New York at channel four. Right. Um, so that uh, you obviously, again, you've been to so many games, I guess one last question about the games before we talk about you a little bit more in your career. Um, obviously they go hand in hand, but specifically what, um, what was your favorite Olympic games that you've ever been to? I'm sure this is the first time you're being asked this too. So what is the, your favorite game you've ever been to? Well, besides my first in Sarajevo, those will always be special, but the 1992 summer Olympic games in Barcelona were incredible. It was before 9-11, the security was low, the dream team was literally walking around. Um, my students had the chance to hang out with the dream team. And you know the, the spirit was there, the music was blaring through the city. They had this theme song, um, it was Friends Forever, that was in Spanish. It's, anyways. Um, and, by the end of the Olympic Games, we're all singing it every time. At first, it was like, oh, you know, a little annoying. But then everybody's like, you know, singing it. And it really made it special. The other thing that's unique about Barcelona is they had Las Ramblas. Everybody knew that was the place to go. So you had one area in the host city where everybody, if they wanted a party, that's where you go. And you could meet people from around the world. You just kind of hung out in the you know, plazas. And it was just an incredible experience. And the vistas from all of the different sports venues were just beautiful. It was really hard to, um, you know, not be <laughs> the, the best games ever. Uh, the other thing is the legacy from the Barcelona games were incredible. They changed the city, they opened it up for tourism, and now they've got a problem of over-tourism. But, you know, talk about a legacy. Uh, look at the 1992 Summer Games. Now, you know, the next the Winter Olympic Games was 1994 Lillehammer. And, you know, yes, it was hard to get to. It's three hours from... Uh, um, Oslo, but, and it was such a small village. That was the last Olympic Games that was held in a true winter village. And, you know, unfortunately, yes, a lot of sponsors couldn't find hotels there. They had to stay in Oslo and slept up and back. But, you know, we stayed in this house, all, you know, 25 of us in one house cramped in. But it was the most incredible experience with these Norwegians in freezing cold weather, camping out because they have this love for the Olympic Games. And they had these flags and they were sharing them, you know, flags of 
countries from all over. They'd be handing them to us and they'd be singing and they'd be just so welcoming. And, you know, that's what the Olympic spirit is about. Yes, the competitions are always excellent. Uh, we go there for those competitions, but we also go there for that international experience. That's incredible. I mean, to, to your point about Barcelona, like, again, I, I was born in 91. So my entire life, or at least everything I can remember, Barcelona has always been looked at as like this just giant city that's very welcoming and, you know, tourist based. People go there to have a good time and spend time there. Um, I didn't know that like the Olympics was kind of its, you know, foot in the door to that entire situation because I had so many friends travel abroad there. They, you know, went to school for a semester out there and during college and I've only heard amazing things about it. So I'm glad. And, and, and the fact that you, the dream team, you know, obviously 92, that didn't quite stick. But of course, that's something that's just absolutely incredible. And yeah, I guess if you're hanging out with Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, that's a pretty good, you know, a couple weeks to spend some time there. The, the 1992 Olympics were really the launch pad for tourism in Barcelona. Yeah, that's Barcelona on the map. Literally, yeah. I mean, that, again, it's just kind of always been like that for my life, but that's because, you know, my life pretty much started in 92. So that's kind of funny. And then, yeah, Lilyhammer, I know, you know, I've heard so many good things. I've spoken with athletes that were at that games. They said it was incredible. As you said, you know, it's this small village, this small town where it's, it's very intimate. Um, and the people there are just so, so energetic. And I mean, pretty much all of those Scandinavian countries, they all absolutely love the Winter Olympics because all of those sports, I mean, some of them are their literal national sports. So that's the thing that they get most excited about and get up for. So I think that's awesome. And hey, to have them back to pack in a two-year span, I'm sure uh, in an 18-month span practically, I'm sure that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good time. And, uh, and the fact that you got to bring your students over, right? Those were the first two games that you got to bring your students with you too. I mean, all that coupled to, uh, to some amazing events. Yes. And, you know, some of my best friends today are still some of those students in that class because at that point I was fairly young. <laughs> Oh, stop it, Lisa, stop it. Um, so I do want to speak about your teaching career, obviously, again, you know, starting in, in 91, 92, I think with, as you said, with George Washington, um, what exactly, you know, being a sports, uh, sports management professor, director of the sports management degree program, what exactly does that entail? And, um, you know, how much of it is really based around the Olympics? Or is it just every two years that's based around the Olympics? Well, the Olympics serves as a great um, teaching platform because so many new ideas are tried everything from technology, but then also management systems. So I use every day in my classroom uh, information I learned from corporate sponsors at the Olympic Games about why they sponsor and uh, how they activate. So those activations that happen at the Olympic Games often then trickle down to activations at um, teams, you know, the NBA teams or NFL teams, um, but I was able to see it first uh, at the Olympics. And so I teach on sports marketing is um, primarily my, the course that I focus on, and that's with sponsorship and ticket sales and <clears throat> um, brand management and also communications. Uh, and in addition to that, um, I also teach, but that's at both the grad and undergrad um, we teach facility management course. Uh, I don't teach our sports law course, but um, somebody else does that and then the communications. That's incredible. I mean, so many, I mean, that the thing about sports that I've found um, and the reason why I love it so much is because it's, uh, you know, outside of like 
politics and religion, it's the, it's the thing that people get most emotional about. And um, whether that's good emotions or bad emotions, I'd rather feel something than nothing, right? And so that's why it's always been for me, uh, you know, a true, true love of mine since I was a very young age. And to be able to work in this industry and in all of these aspects that you just laid out, sales, marketing, communications, law, um, you know, facility management, I think just by being able to be around these teams, these athletes, it just makes it a little bit more interesting. It just makes it a little bit more better than, you know, if you're working at a consumer packaged good company or a finance company. I'd rather do finance for an MBA team than finance for JP Morgan, right? And I teach MBA students. So, you know, some MBAs, well, what will I learn at the Olympic Games? I said, oh, you don't understand. I mean, there's, you know, all the finance, there's accounting, there's technology, there's project management. I mean, there are you know, 40 functional areas with each of them having 200 different tasks. And you put that into a whole project management spreadsheet. And uh, it's a, a major undertaking. And for those students studying event management, what better event than the a mega event like this. At mega event to say the least. Um, I know I was checking out your LinkedIn too. You've done a little bit of work with FIFA and the World Cup as well, right? Yes, I've attended five uh, World Cups. And the first one was here in the United States in 1994 when I was actually on the host local organizing committee in Washington, D.C. So that was an incredible experience to help plan the first World Cup in the United States. And I'm looking forward to 2026. Yeah, hopefully 26 and 28, you have a seat at some table because, I mean, not too many people have been, to, as you said, to these mega events. You know, it'll be 20 Olympic Games. Actually, by 2028, it'll be 21 Olympic Games, if I'm not mistaken, right? No, 23, right? And then FIFA 26. So there's another, there's another World Cup in there as well. So, yeah, I, I really hope you get a seat at the table, Lisa. Thanks. Put a good word for me. <laughs> I will do my best. I promise you that. Um, so then the uh, last topic I'd like to talk about, what exactly is an executive master of Olympic sport organizations? MEMOS is the acronym for that. And it's a master's program similar to like FIFA has a, a master's program. And it's for those people working in the Olympic movement. So they're either working for a National Olympic Committee, an international federation, a national sports federation. Here in the United States, we call those NGBs. So, or for an organizing committee. It could be for World University Games, it could be for Olympic Games, Youth Games, Paralympic Games. So anybody within the Olympic family can apply through their National Olympic Committee to be accepted into this program. And then we travel to four different locations each year. And each year, each module is about two weeks. And so you have 40 different students from around the world and they all have like a thesis or a project they work on for that year. And the faculty are assigned to different students. And so for me, it's an incredible experience. Often, I think I learn more from them than they learn from me, because I'm working with athletes from Lesotho, or, you know, uh, Papua New Guinea, and, you know, just or Russia, or you know, United States. <laughs> but you uh, work with these students on projects that are impacting their National Olympic Committee. And it's, it's really eye-opening to hear some things that we just take for granted here in the United States that are just very difficult to implement in different countries. 
Absolutely. I could only imagine, honestly, what it's like um, in some of those countries that you just said. Uh, I mean, even parts of the United States, right? Like some of it, you know, some of it is just not quite as as similar as it is to us out here on the East Coast. So um, it is definitely very interesting. And, you know, I, I appreciate the work you do. I think it's incredible, obviously, for what I'm doing. You know, it's something, uh, you know, maybe one day I'll be able to make it to, you know, you got a, you got a pretty good lead on me, but hopefully one day I'll be able to start chipping away at it. Um, but Lisa, this was incredible. Thank you so much for your time. Lisa Delphi Narati got it that time. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, look forward to seeing you in Tokyo. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Our Athletes with Lisa Delphi Narati. As I said, she was an absolute wealth of knowledge. A lot of her information will be in the show notes, so you can go follow her and learn a little bit more as time goes on. All of our information is in the show notes as well, so please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and check me out on LinkedIn in um please 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 give this show five stars please share this with your friends and tell them all about it because that way more people can hear these incredible stories with these athletes and just interesting people like lisa so thank you so much and make it a wonderful day (laughs) 